love that song. The power of the cross. It's the only reason we're here. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's still awake. Hope you got your notes. I, I left a few spaces on here to write. Well, we're going to continue our study this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians in our series entitled Called Out. And today we're going to be looking at what the Apostle Paul had written about the importance of the message of the cross. But before I dive in, I, I just want to make a, a, an observation, I think, about how the cross is often viewed in our society and in the world today. Um, we find crosses on various churches, on stained glasses, on steeples. We see them around the necks of many religious people or many superstitious people. We see them on tattoos on athletes and other people that I'm not sure they know what they mean. Um, they're, the sign of the cross is made by many athletes before they compete. Um, there was a story that I read about a gambler at a racetrack who happened to see a priest make the sign of the cross over a horse and he immediately went out and bet everything he had on that horse. At the conclusion of the race, when the horse lost, came in last, he sought the priest out angrily, wondering what in the world happened. I saw that you blessed that horse. And he said, oh, no, no. I was giving the horse last rites. <laughs> you see, all of these stories just illustrate how far and how vastly different the image of the cross was to Jesus and is to our culture today. It's largely an ornament now. But in Jesus' day, it was not. And when I was growing up in the 60s, yes, I'm that old, um, and we were on our way back east on an automobile trip that my parents bravely took, my brother, sister, and I, we were going to see the United States, and among other things, we got to see the 102nd floor observation deck of the Empire State Building. So as we neared the city of New York, we all were staring out the windows of uh, my dad's 1967 Plymouth Fury II. Yes, it's a classic. 383 Hemi engine. It was interesting. It was a pretty fast land yacht. Anyway, we were going to that very tall building, and as we got closer to the city, the buildings got seemingly taller. And the closer we got, the taller they got, until we stood at the foot of the Empire State Building. It's over 10 million bricks, stands almost a quarter mile high, and we felt pretty small. And I think the same thing happens when we get closer and closer to something big. And this is one of Paul's points. When we get closer and closer to the majesticness, the graphic and awesome display of God's wisdom and power in the cross, it's hard to stand at the foot of the cross and feel very big. It's just difficult. This is how I think we're going to enter this passage this morning, looking at this incredible issue of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So open, if you would, your Bibles, tablets, phones, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us such clarity in your word and such simplicity. Men's wisdom abounds. It has from the beginning. We've always thought we knew best. But you're saying that the wisdom of God and the power of God is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us truly see that today. Would you impress that on every heart and allow us to not see me, but hear your voice. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, so far here in the first chapter of Corinthians, Paul has been addressing first the danger of division in the church and our need for unity. And in verse 18, he tells us one of the primary reasons, the foundation of our unity, is really the cross of Christ. Without the cross, we are not one. But with the cross, we are one in a way this world will never understand. It is the foundation. So before I, I just begin here, I, let me set the stage and remind us of the world into which Paul took this message. Um, every culture, probably from the dawn of time, has struggled with the questions of who am I? What am I? Where have I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who is God? What is true? What is reality? What is fulfilling? What is success? What is death? What happens to me after I die? These are the same questions that the Greek philosophers were wrestling with. And they were all trying to find answers. And see, in the first century, the Greek philosophers, um, philosophy really is the word that means love of wisdom. But they didn't love God's wisdom, they loved men's wisdom. Men's assessing a situation, identifying what the problem is, and coming up with solutions. Man's way. Um, there were over 50 different major philosophies coming out of Athens at this time. Athens is only 45 miles away, so it's similar to San Francisco and us. There's a lot of things we don't think of here, but they certainly get to us pretty fast out of San Francisco. And as a cosmopolitan city, uh, Corinth was a pretty decadent city. And we might think San Francisco or this Bay Area is pretty bad. I would say Corinth is probably right up there. And this is where Paul took the gospel message. And they didn't have internet then, but they had amphitheaters. And into the amphitheaters, they drug people that says, wow us with your rhetoric. Give us a show. Show us what you know. Um, we kind of do the same thing today. Um, we have people that get on the internet, on podcasts, on whatever else, and at the speed of light across the internet, the world now knows this man's, this woman's opinion. And you have to say, if it's not coming from here, it's not very valuable. I would also say, the philosophers in Paul's day were kind of like the rock stars. The people who could wow a crowd, hold an audience, come up with an innovative thought, they were the ones that everybody's kids should want to be like. Kind of like today's A-list actors or star athletes or maybe even some of these podcasters that seem to have wide influence. This is what everybody's trying to be. Everybody's trying to listen to them. They're popular. So when Paul gets to Athens, I mean to Corinth, what does he say? I want to be just like these guys, right? I'm going to fit in. Nope. He started preaching 
something called the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And did he do that because it was popular? Because everybody liked it? No. It was the word of God. It was true. So now, Paul says he knew one other thing about this message, and this is one of the things I hope we take with us today. In Romans 1.16, what does Paul say? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So unless you think you are the power, the philosophical rock star is the power, the podcaster is the power, the power is the message itself. We carry a powerful message. But I have to say, he front loads his letter here in 1 Corinthians because he says the gospel is really the answer to life's deepest questions. It is the unifying effect of the church. And we need to address the same things today to make sure that the gospel is remaining preeminent. If the gospel does not remain preeminent, if we are tempted, like the internet, or to try to dumb down the message, make it more palatable, we're missing it. We have to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. And what happens is the, I think many churches want to talk less about sin because it's not popular. They want to talk more about inclusion and more about lights and smoke and whatever else to be contemporary. But if our message ever stops becoming foolishness, like it says in verse 18 to the world, we've lost the message. Our job is not to dumb down God's word. Our job is to proclaim it because in it lies the power. So let's talk about three things this morning. The cross, foolish to some, powerful to others. The futility and impermanence of man's wisdom. And the foolishness and the weakness of God. So point one, the cross. It's viewed two different ways. Foolishness to some, powerful to others. God uses a foolish message to show forth his wisdom and power. So we read in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's take away at least three things out of this. One, what does he mean, the word of the cross Does he mean Jesus' words from the cross? Does he mean words about the cross? No. Paul's very specific here. He means the message that is the cross, the gospel. The thing he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again according to the scriptures. This is Paul's gospel. And what he said here, these truths must be the core. So when he starts right off, verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but are being saved it is of power. He's saying this is the core, this is the crux of the church's message. And lest we forget, the message of the cross is the same thing that John said in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is no salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Are you catching it? It seems pretty exclusive. It seems pointed to the cross. All of these messages... It says Christ bore our sins upon his body on the cruel tree. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him, what? Our goodness? 
No, the iniquity of us all. On that cross, we just sang about it. I can't even imagine. We can't even recognize. According to Isaiah, he didn't even look like a man. He was so disfigured under the weight and the penalty and the punishment of our sin under the wrath of Almighty God. This is our gospel. If we ever let go of this, we might as well close the doors. This is the power of God. So we must be tenacious about this. And the second thing I want us to observe is the word of the cross is two responses. It's foolishness, this message, this gospel message that God sent a son, put him on a cruel cross, he bled, he died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. This message will strike the world one of two ways. First one, foolishness. It's foolishness to who? Those who are perishing. I want us to make sure we get this because there's nothing we can do to change God's word about what this message is to the lost. You can't pretty it up. It said in the first service, you, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it will still be a pig. You can't pretty up the gospel message any more than it is. It is what it is. And it will be either regarded as foolish by the world or by those who are saved, it's the power of God. Now, we carry around, we read, and you have to understand the foolish word that is used here by Paul and by God is the, word, the Greek word moris, which is really, anybody, moris, moron. It's moronic. God says the world will view this message that they have to believe in a person who was nailed to a cross, bled and died, buried and rose, they're gonna say that's moronic. It makes no sense, it's foolish, it's insane, it's asinine, it's too simple, it's too, it's too something, but it's certainly not reasonable. It's lunacy. And we see that response around us all the time, don't we? Well, there's two reasons why. I think there's a couple reasons. There might be a million, but I know of two. One is I think the word of the cross is offensive to people because it offends our pride. We wanna get what we wanna get on our own terms. If you tell me I have to come by way of this one man on this one cross and it's exclusive, I don't want a part of that. If you have to tell me that I have to live a certain way and I can't just approach heaven my way, I want the heaven on my plan, then I don't like it. It's offensive to me. It offends my pride. If you're telling me that, what can I do to be saved? And the real answer is nothing. Believe. There's no actions you need to do. No works you need to finish. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Confess your sins. Reject the sin. Cling to Christ. But you don't have to do anything because the doing's been done. Christ did it. Well, the second reason, though, is because the cross represents shame. It represents death. It represents failure. We want our heroes to be powerful, don't we? Who's gonna say, I'm gonna run to this hero that got wiped out, killed, and, and, and killed not only at all, but on a cross? See, we don't understand the stigma of a cross today. We wear too many of them around our necks or, or on our jewelry or whatever else. This was the symbol of the worst death in the Roman Empire. Romans had a law that you couldn't even crucify a Roman citizen. It was reserved for the most despicable of all human beings. It was a sign of degradation, of indignity, of dishonor, of a scandal that was repugnant. And to say that I have to believe in a savior that died this way? You're nuts. This is what's so remarkable about the thief on the cross. Why would he say, remember me when you come into your kingdom when he's just as dead as you? God did a work in that thief's heart. That's why. Well, let's keep going. But who are those that are perishing? 
I th- it's really important to understand, perishing is not the future event that's gonna happen to the non-believer. This word here, perishing, is present tense. They're already disintegrating. They're already unraveling like a cheap sweater. The people who are perishing are already on a slippery slope to hell. They have to do nothing. They're already there. They're not gonna wait to get judged to be perishing. They're already perishing now. Their lives are a mess. And what does it say? Unless God allows them to see the truth of this cross, they will stay on that path. But what does it say about us? It says what? But us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now I love that, I don't have a lot of time to develop it, but notice we are being saved. Well I thought according to right there, we are saved by Philippians or Ephesians, we are saved through faith. It's a done deal, right? Yes it is. But it's also true that we are being saved. We were saved from the penalty of God's sin the moment we believed. We were given power to defeat sin in our lives on a daily basis the moment we believed, but we have to acquire it every day by the Spirit's power. And one day, we will be freed from the presence of all sin, and we will be delivered ultimately in our resurrected body, and our salvation will be complete. Right now, right? We're gonna have a completed salvation, so right now, all he can say is we are being saved. We're in the process. And once you enter this process, there's no getting out of the process. But there's only two groups here. And it's, what does it say about this? It's the power of God. See, that's what it is for me and that's what it is for you. See, the message of the cross is not just good information. If we do not declare the message of the cross properly, we are, we are denying the hearer of the power of the message. God says there's power in this message no matter how foolish they think it is. There's power. It's God's power. See, and it's the power to do what? It's the power to rescue us. It's the power to reconcile us, to pardon our sins, to to resurrect us one day. It's the power that makes us saved. That same power is needed by all the perishing. They need to hear it. And we can't just hum a few bars of my life is better with Jesus and not get to the message of the cross. The message of the cross is what has the power. And I love this. We're not just saved to have a better life. We're not saved to have better self-esteem. We're not saved to be financially more secure. We are saved from the rightful penalty of God Almighty's wrath on everyone who does not trust in his son. We all deserved the wrath, but those who ran to the son, the son took the wrath for us. Everybody that's not resting under the sun is directly receiving and will receive the almighty God's wrath. It abides on them. So what I want us to know here is no matter how many divisions you see in the world around you, God sees two. He doesn't see all the colors, all the sexes, all all the flavors, all the economics, all the educational strata. He sees two. Paul says there right here, there's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So I know without a doubt that I can say 100% truthfully, you sitting here today are in one of those two camps. I may not know all your educational stuff, I know your races, I don't know anything else, but I do know this, You are either here sitting perishing or you're sitting here saved from the wrath of Almighty God. I really hope it's in the saved category. I hope by the end of this message you hear this message so clearly that God draws your heart out of darkness into his marvelous light and that he rescues you through this powerful message. It's not through me. Please know I'm a weak dude. This is the message of God Almighty and it is what's powerful, right? This is what makes every one of you 
who know Jesus, who shares the gospel message, a powerful witness. It's not because of all your apologetics. It's not because of all the verses you've memorized. It's not because of any of that. If you can accurately reflect this truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to them, it's powerful. That's what we need to see today. Second point. The futility and impermanence of man's wisdom. I want to go quickly over this, but it's just a true statement. God said man's wisdom will never last. Man is not that smart. I hate to bust your bubble this morning, but God doesn't think you're very smart. On your best day. Um, In fact, he uses this verse in verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is a quotation out of Isaiah, verse ch- uh, chapter 29. When the Assyrians were threatening to attack Judah, so Judah's great strategy was, trust God? Nope. I'm going to run to Egypt and set up an alliance. They'll protect me. Well, Assyrians had disconquered everybody they'd ever attacked. I think they were like 34 and 0. there was no chance for little Judah to escape this. And what happened was they were hoping this alliance would intimidate Assyria so they'd stay away. In fact, it had the opposite effect. It said Assyria saw this this alliance they were trying to form and it provoked them into attacking them. So wonderful wisdom, men. Great strategy. So what does God do? God says, well, I think I need to teach these guys a lesson. And this is the lesson that Paul's dragging out here. He says, I'm not even going to stop Assyria a long way away. I'm going to let them attack Judah, and I'm going to let them besiege the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to be under so much pressure, they won't know what to do. And that's exactly what happened. All the men in the kingdom are doing this. I don't know what to do. Uh, We pulled our last punch with this Egypt plan. Uh, Anybody else got another plan? Fortunately, King Hezekiah had a plan. He went and he prayed. The amazing thing to me is that God answered. After all this nonsense, why did God hear him? But it said that he sent Isaiah back in chapter 30 and he mocked him a little bit. And he says, you know, you tried to run to Egypt, but I'll take care of you, so don't worry. Um, Isn't this just like us? Has anybody ever done what I've done? You get in the middle of a situation really quickly and you start solving immediately. You start working in your own wisdom and strength and power trying to get through this, even if it's a car breakdown on the side of the road. And then when you've done everything you can do and you've made everything worse, then you pray. Anybody have a problem in their home and they, they're going to solve it right away and they say something and they realize, I don't think I've made it any better. In fact, I think I've made it a lot worse. This is, this is our nature. Our nature is to trust in ourself, not trust in God. And when, what Paul's saying here is through this story of Judah, they trusted in God and what did God do? Well, Sennacherib besieged the city he was going to conquer it. And Isaiah said this. You know what, Hezekiah? Don't worry. They're not going to succeed. And in fact, they won't break down your wall. They won't come into the city. And they won't even shoot one arrow into the city. I'll take care of it. And the Bible records that God sent one angel into the camp of the Assyrian army And in one night, 185,000 men died. The Assyrian army was decimated. They retreated with their tail between their legs back to Assyria. And Hezekiah says, well, what am I supposed to do? And God said, nothing. You don't need to do a thing. And that's Paul's message. In this method of salvation, what's my job? Nothing. Let the power of God rescue people. You don't have to be slick. You don't have to come up with church methods. You don't have to do a lot of this stuff. He's saying, I am powerful enough to save without your methodology. 
Do you know that? Culture does not dictate what church should do. The word of God tells us what we should do, and he said there's power in the message we preach, and we don't have to be pretty and slick. Now, we're not trying to be ugly and unfriendly. That's not what I'm saying. But don't put your eggs in the basket of friendliness to win souls. You're not gonna win souls because you're cute. You have good lights. You got smoke. You got a great band. You're going to save souls if you preach the word of God and the word of the cross and the gospel and the power of God will save. That's what will save. Well, he doesn't need our help to save. And he says after that, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? I just think this is a little bit of mocking. Uh, Okay, line up all your smart guys. Let's see how that worked. Okay, smart guys, what was your, your, your opinion was Egypt thing, huh? How'd that work out for you? Not too good. How about the scribe? I think the scribe here could also be the scribe, not the Jewish lawyer, but actually there were scribes that were assigned to the Assyrian army. And their job, as they looted and pillaged every country they took over, they recorded all the goodies they were sending back to Assyria. Oh, gold, oh yes, yes. More silver, yes, yes, yes. Horses, oh yes. And he says, okay, scribes, uh, show me what you recorded of what you took from Judah. Goose egg? Nothing? Nada? Scribes, you're not very helpful here. Basically, all your wise planning to take all this stuff back to Assyria came up to nothing. And scribes, you're the proof of it. So you line up here too. What's the next one? The debater. I love the debater. This is a term that the Greeks used, but Paul asked sarcastically, so what have all these debates and your clever philosophies produced? We could ask the same question today, couldn't we? What of all of our intelligence? We have, haven't we learned a lot over the last 100 years, like more than the prior millennia? Advances in science and medicine, and what have we got out of that? Is our world more peaceful? Do people rob from each other anymore? Uh, racism is gone. War, you know, we don't kill anybody in wars anymore, right? No. All of our learning has produced zero. All you debaters, you have to understand, man's philosophies produce zero. There's no real change to our culture. In fact, there was an educated man named John Witherspoon. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was the first president of Princeton University. And we remember, right, that Princeton University, Yale University, all of these schools were originally started to train preachers. That's why they start. Well, how are we doing on that? I think if you said you were a preacher, you might not get in those schools anymore. But what did this man say in 1768? about education and its relationship to God. See, he wasn't against education. Education is not the sin here. It's what we do with it and what we trust. That's the problem. What he said was this, accursed be all learning which sets itself in opposition to the cross of Christ. Accursed be all learning which disguises or is ashamed of the cross of Christ. Accursed be all learning which is not made subservient to the honor and glory of the cross of Christ. So how's our pursuit of knowledge today compare with these ideals? Is that what you see in your university? Is this what what guides their learning? Are you kidding? If you come in with the message of the cross of Christ, I dare you to see if you can get a forum and get one of those lecture halls available to you to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to promote the cross of Christ on any of these universities that are public universities. Christ has been thrown out. But his message is still powerful. Well, we need to go on. Man's wisdom will never solve man's problem, which is man's sinful heart. No matter how much education, learning, wisdom you throw at it, man's heart is unreachable without the power of God. Well, and God said he's not just gonna 
tolerate the wisdom of the wise, but one day he says, I will destroy it. Our wisdom is repugnant to God. You know that? It started in the garden. Adam and Eve says, I know better. Did you now? I don't think we can blame them because you or I would have done the same thing. But how did that work out for us? Not too good. Man's wisdom, achievements, education will never solve the problems of the world or men's hearts. Only God and the message of the cross will change the world and change man's hearts, period. Well, man's plans are flawed and weak and will ultimately all be destroyed. Point three. For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Did you know that he specifically designed his plan that nobody could come to him through wisdom. Nobody could come to him by reasoning it out, by being smart enough. He was going to save the world through what seemed by a foolish message of a cross. What God's trying to say here in as we look at these verses about the foolishness of God and the foolishness of men, we have an overestimation of our own intellect. I want you to know that. I say that, you know, I say it of myself. Why am I so defensive with some of the things that get said to me? Because I think I'm right. Right? And I don't have to be right. I just have to think I'm right. And what he's saying here is our brains are no match for God's. There was a man named George Washington Carver who came up with over 300 uses of a peanut. And the story that he tells about his own journey was this. He was saying, when I was young, I used to tell God, tell me the mystery of the universe. And I think, he said, God tells him, think a little smaller. And he says, well, tell me the mystery of the peanut. He said, that's the more your size. And he found over 300 uses. God answered this prayer and gave him 300 uses of a peanut. And I thank God for peanut butter. I love peanut butter. But the message here is we have pea brains. Peanut brains. We, we don't hold a candle to God's wisdom or God's power. And he said he was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So how is anybody saved? Sovereign will of God. We can't get there by learning. We can't get there by research. We can't get there on our own. Just like the thief on the cross whose only reason for being in paradise was not because of his intellect. He said this, look, why are you here? Can you imagine that conversation? The only angels gathering around the first person in paradise with Jesus. Wow, you must be special. You're the first guy here. And he goes, so what did you do? Uh, nothing. Well, what about your good works? Uh, don't have any. Um, well, do you have any Bible verses memorized? Nope. Did you go to church? Nope. Baptized? Nope. Why are you here? because I trusted the man on the middle cross who told me I could come. Amen. That's the only reason any of us are here. We trusted in the man on the middle cross who said, if you have faith in me, you can come. Amen. Whosoever will may come. Amen. Well, the world says, according to verse 22 and 3, will either stumble, laugh, or believe. So when you preach, when you share the gospel, expect one of three responses. You shouldn't expect the response that says, wow, that's very provocative. I think I'll go think about that. That's not one of the ones listed. The three responses are, you're nuts, it stumbles me, I can't get there from where you're going, that's the Jews. They said crucifixion, a Messiah who's crucified and not as reigning as Messiah makes no sense, go away. Stupid message. The world's gonna laugh. Ha! Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to trust a bloody, scarred man who dies. 
That's my savior. I want someone that looks more like the man of steel or, you know, someone who bullets bounce off of. That's the guy I want. No, it's foolishness. So we expect the world to either stumble at what we say and be belligerent about it. They're going to laugh at us and say we are nuts or they'll believe. Those are the only three responses. And I think it's really interesting that the believe It's, look at here. In verse 23 it says, the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom. And Paul says, I'm not giving it to either one of them. I'm not giving the Jews what they want. I'm not giving the Greeks what they want, the Gentiles. But I preach Christ crucified. That's our message. And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, thank God for the buts in the Bible. This is the but but we preach Christ crucified. That's the church's job. That's the church's job, to preach Christ crucified. See, if God, I just know right now, if we do that, God will use the message because it's his power. We preach Christ crucified, a Messiah, the coming conquering one, the one who will establish his kingdom the one who came in power and glory from the Father. This is the Christ whom we preach, but we preach him crucified. That means I'm preaching a murdered Messiah, a slaughtered Savior. Yep, that's who I preach. And this is the message that will save the world. Well, I have to say the third thing that we're gonna go quickly to shows up in verse 24. So how is it that you could believe here today? How is it I believe? How did you get here? If you can't get there by study, you can't say, well, I was a seeker my whole life and I sought God and I found him. Nope, that's not what's happened. Nobody finds God through human effort. Now, verse 24 but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Aha, those who are the called. Do you remember the third response happens? Those who believe is because they've been called. The sovereign call of God has reached your ears. You responded, you put faith, and has now become the wisdom and the power of God in your own life. This is the mystery. God's sovereign call. Do you know that takes the pressure off of you and me? I'm not responsible for the person I witness to to come to faith. Because I know they can't get there because I was eloquent or not eloquent. Because I was lousy or good. I've heard it said, well I don't want to witness very much because I'm not very good at it and I might make people kind of more confused about what the gospel's about. So I can't share that. Are you kidding? The dead are dead. You can't hurt the dead. Are you tracking me? If they are dead in their trespasses and sins, I don't care how bad of a doctor you are, you can't hurt them. And as a witnesser, we have to put our trust, not in our skill, not in our ability, but in our message. That's why everybody is not off the hook to share but everybody is off the hook in a sense of it's not your responsibility to save. It's the sovereign call of God. And that's the same thing he says all through the beginning of this chapter. Verse one, Paul called as an apostle. Two, saints by calling. In verse nine, God is faithful for whom you were called into fellowship with his son. Verse 24, but those who are the called. And verse 26, consider your calling. All of us are here because of a divine calling. Not because we're smart. We are just here because we heard the effectual call of Almighty God in our ear when someone shared the message of the gospel. We go, I want it. I didn't want it yesterday. I didn't want it five minutes ago. But for some reason, I want it now. That's God's call. This is what we pray that will happen when we share the message. There's only one way to God, and that's, 
Christ, the wisdom of God, and the cross, the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger. Does that offend anybody to have you, them call God weak or foolish? Originally, when I read these verses, I hate, hey, 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 my God's not weak and foolish. This is an illustrative uh, literary device that says, God, if you ever had a weak day, if you ever had a bad day, his wisdom would make your pea brain look even tinier. Try a grain of sand. Try Adam. Try, okay, God's weakness is better than anything we could have on our best day. And so what is he telling you for us to do? Trust him. What? Uh, does anybody ever try to put God's will through your logic test? You ever do that? That doesn't make any sense. You know, give away something so I can get more. That makes no sense. Um, why would he ask me to do what he's doing? I think many of us want God's will to make sense. Do you think Abraham thought it made sense to sacrifice Isaac? That's why he did it. He thought about it. You know what, God? That's absolutely right. I need to kill my son. Let's go. Are you nuts? That didn't happen. He just said, I don't know what's going on, but I know God is higher than I am. God's ways are better than mine. He's God. I'm a peanut. I'm going to do what he says and trust him. That's what I think part of the message is here. Do you trust him enough to obey him? Do you trust him enough? Well, let me close. I think there's three things that we should learn here, and maybe four. One, the cross is the only reason we have unity in this room. The power of the cross, the changing, transforming, redeeming, sanctifying power of the cross is the only reason that we're all together. There should be nothing that this world can think of, imagine, or put in our path that has a stronger ability to divide than the cross has to unite. We cannot be divided over anything else because we have the power of the cross. That's number one. Two, I think what we all need to be asking God is to be drawn close and back to the cross. Take us back afresh. Remind us, I didn't become a Christian because of my good living. I think some of us have been Christians so long, you think you were always good. Your memory is short. Take us back to the cross because we get to the right size at the foot of the cross and we realize, you know what, Lord, the only reason that you accept me is because Jesus died. The only reason I'm in your family is because Jesus died. The only reason I have, it's not because of my good works. It's not because I have more Bible verses memorized. It's not because I've been doing more things obediently. It's because Jesus died for me. That's the only reason I'm here. We all need to be taken back to this cross because it's the only reason we're here. Amen. Two, I think what we need is we never for, uh, forget to go into our world and take the cross with us. Sometimes I think the church marches into the world and it thinks it's a business. It thinks it's trying to get converts into a room, pack the house. That's not our goal. Our goal is to preach the message. So wherever you go this week, make a beeline for the gospel. You don't just share about your great camping trip and how wonderful life is now that you know Jesus. Those are wonderful things. Those are testimonies. But the power of God rests in the message of the cross. The power of God rests in the message of the cross. Well, and lastly, we might all need to look like idiots to promote a message that God's told us is going to be moronic. Are you willing to look like an idiot for God? Because God hasn't given you the best product to sell as far as the world's concerned. We know it to be the best product in the universe in the sense it's not a product, 
but a relationship with God, what can compare? Forgiveness from sin, what can compare? You're offering them a new life, an eternal life, a forgiven life, a blessed life. What, that is incredible. But to the world, you're not offering that. You're offering a foolish message. And we have to understand that it's just like what we say, when you wave a $100 bill in front of a dead man, they don't grab for it. They can't. Until God makes them alive, they'll never reach. And until God quickens their heart, they will never believe. We need to be prepared to be humiliated, rejected, laughed at, because we are going to be carrying the most precious message around, but the world thinks it's moronic. But be prepared. God will use that message to save if we do not give up. May we always remember and be emboldened by these truths. Father, may we here at Valley love the cross, preach the cross, stand by the cross, never be ashamed of the message of the cross. Father, we might let go of a lot of things. We may not be good at everything, but let us be good at promoting the salvation that we have through the death burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who has paid it all. Give us the power and boldness to lift up the cross in our daily lives. Don't let us just be good neighbors, friendly neighbors. Let us make a beeline to the gospel whenever you give us the opportunity. Because we're convinced, Father, that at this cross the saving message of the cross is the only power that can lift men and women out of sin, release them from condemnation, give them new life and purpose, set their feet in a new direction, give them eternal life, and give them life forevermore with you. This is the powerful message we carry. May we respect the message. May we not try to dilute the message. Not, let me not be ashamed of the foolishness of the message, but let us enjoy what you do as we are faithful to proclaim it. Help us to be good proclaimers, knowing that all rests on you. In Jesus' name, amen.